Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Why are there so many UFO sightings in New York's Hudson River Valley? How close are the encounters? Is it part of a larger flap area that includes other paranormal phenomena? Hello and welcome to the 772nd edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno here on WOON, 1240 AM and 99.3 FM as well. And this is our 11th year on the air. I am Ben. And those lofty questions came from my co-host, partner in the paranormal, and dad, Paul. And uh, today we are bringing you a subject that could be much larger than it sounds. And if you couldn't guess by the the questions at the beginning, it's going to be a very large and encompassing subject. And if you'd like to be a part of the show today, you can call us at 401-766-1240 from anywhere, or email at paulbehindtheparanormal.com. And don't forget about Facebook messaging as well. Okay, well, coming to us via Skype today is Linda Zimmerman, a research chemist turned award-winning author. She has written 30 books. Subjects include science, history, the paranormal, and she is also a novelist. She has lectured across the country and has appeared on numerous TV and radio shows. Linda starred in the documentary In the Night Sky, I Recall a UFO, which was based on her research into sightings in the Hudson River Valley of New York, the subject of our discussion today. The film won the 2013 People's Choice Award at the International UFO Congress. Her UFO books include In the Night Sky and Hudson Valley UFOs, and she is currently working on a third book on the subject. Uh, her website, go to zim.com. I like that. We first met Linda at uh, the Dan- Danbury, Connecticut, at the Western Connecticut UFO Conference, I believe two years ago, and again this past year. It was a great pleasure to meet her and, and to uh, be on the same speaking docket with her, and uh, we're glad to have her on the show today. So, Linda Zimmerman, welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And congrats on uh, 772 shows. Wow. Yeah, right. You really lose track of time, huh? Time flies when you're having fun. <laughs> so, yeah, time flies when your uh, your head is in the paranormal. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> so, I guess we'll start off with um, something, something of a, a somewhat deceptively simple question. Um, so, where does the uh, Hudson Valley rank among UFO hotspots in the United States? Well, I believe it's number one because we're not just looking at one or two waves. We're looking at activity that's gone back well over 100 years. So um, I may be biased as this is my where I live and where my research is, but I would be hard-pressed to think of another area of the country with so many waves, so many sightings over so many generations. So how far back does it go? You mentioned well, over 100 years. certainly there were some Native American legends, but, you know, again, legends, how can we prove that? Mm-hmm. I have found articles from the 1860s through the 1880s. You know, they think maybe it's a religious experience or it's, uh, it's a ghost or these strange lights in the sky. So certainly things were going on then. But the one I can really document is the wave of 1908 to 1910. Hmm. Okay. Um. So I guess um, is it more just more just sightings? I mean, you kind of mentioned like religious religious experiences, and um, a good friend of ours, Joe Citro, the Bard of the Bazaar, um, he gave a presentation. I believe it was at the New England UFO Conference 
uh, a couple months back, and he made a really interesting point that um, he, he, would t- he was talking about a couple of older legends from, from the New England area, and I think this actually dipped into the Hudson Valley at one point, where uh, these people thought that the end of the world was coming. They saw this great big ball in the sky, and they were just, they were just like, oh, this is... This is terrible. And so, so there were. I guess there were a lot of these kind of like weird experiences going on. So I guess really the question is: are, Were more of these sightings, you know, just regular regular sightings, or were they close encounters, or anything else in kind of that realm, or was it more just you know a mixed bag? Uh, early on, it's again, it's so sketchy. It's it's hard to tell. They'll talk about ghost lights darting around the top of a mountain and thinking maybe it's, you know, murdered Indian princess, you know, that (laughs) you go from that um, to once we get to 1908-1909 they're seeing large craft with searchlights that could hover, go very fast and were seen for hours at a time, which of course we had no uh, aircraft that could or were capable of those flight characteristics, yet it's very important to point out no one thought they were aliens, they were men from Mars. They were very rational about it. They thought the Wright brothers or Thomas Edison, who you know wasn't too far in northern New Jersey here, mm-hmm. um, that he had invented, one of them had invented this miraculous airship that any day now was going to be introduced to the world. And a year passed, and two years passed, and nobody ever came forward. There's been no documentation, no models, no blueprints, nothing found to say that someone had invented such a craft. It sounds to me it's mostly just based on context of of the time. I think people really didn't start thinking little green men and stuff until around the time of Roswell. So any sort of um, you know encounters before that, I'm thinking of the Foo Fighters in World War II, that it's that it's more of like oh well you know it's just an ad- advanced piece of machinery maybe by the Germans or in this case maybe by Thomas Edison so I guess that kind of makes sense that it's more of a, a context kind of thing so what else kind of happened in that that 1908-1910 period? Well, there were sightings that went from uh, New York to Boston in a single night, which oh, wow. when you realize the state of aviation that. Uh, Wilbur Wright had set a distance record of 77 miles and an altitude of 361 feet. So when something is flying at a high altitude with a big, bright searchlight, the span of New York to Boston, Mm -hmm. that's just extraordinary. Um, There were no contact or missing time experiences that I have come across so far. Um, It's just basically these huge dark ships that were seen mostly in the Hudson Valley. Then they spread uh, towards the end of 1909 to the Worcester, Massachusetts area. Hmm. Tens of thousands of people saw them then, and actually up to the Great Lakes and southern Canada as well by, by 1910. One of the interesting sidelights on this was in the 19, uh, I believe it was 1987, and I got a call. I was in the newsroom with the Providence Journal, and where I was uh, an editor, and the call came in from someone I knew and said, I just saw a UFO over your house, in, which it was in Cumberland, Rhode Island at the time. Mm-hmm. So I said, um, so I, I did some research, and it took a day or two, but I, there were UFO reports coming in from all over northern Rhode Island, southeastern Mass, and Connecticut. 
And it turned out that this was a an advertising blimp that oh. was flying. It was all lit up. It had no advertising installed yet and was flying from somewhere, I guess, around Fall River, Mass., to the Hudson Valley, which would take it over us and over northern Connecticut in order to have its advertising installed. <laughs> so I'm sure that's probably, that was not the case in 1990. I just thought I'd mention that since it was relevant. Um, before, I want to get into some cases, of course, Linda, but we have a question uh, from Peter, uh, uh, a dedicated listener here who uh, uh, has sent this in. Ben, if you could uh, go through that. I think it's an interesting question. Sure. Uh, let us see here. So Peter writes to us. Um, do, 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 do. So the Hudson Valley UFO sightings revisited uh, with Michael Schratz. Oh, no, start from the top, please. Oh, start from the top. Okie doke. Um, from the top. So what is your reaction to Michael Schratz' um, Hudson Valley presentation? Yeah, that was at the Danbury Public Library, I believe. I'm not sure when, but uh, yes, I believe yeah, you happened was, to um, be there. Beginning of last year, I think it was. Yeah. I was at Michael Schratz' presentation. We have been communicating for, for several years. I think he does brilliant work. Um, he's he's a top-notch researcher. We we disagree on the final conclusion. Um, he believes that this is all secret government aircraft that was seen during the 1980s, which, for those people who are not familiar with that, were massive triangular boomerang V-shaped craft the size of football fields mm-hmm. or football stadiums and were perfectly silent. I just don't see that that's um, an, ex- uh, an explanation for everything that was seen. Okay. So we, we agreed to disagree quite in quite good terms. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, we met Michael, don't know him very well. Uh, that's our loss. We will remedy that and have him on the show at some point. Uh, what else is uh, Peter at? We don't, we're not sure where Peter's from, but Peter uh, writes some very, very good questions. So he uh, continues to say, I found his presentation to be very impressive. Uh, his ultimate theory was the Hudson Valley UFOs uh, were over the Horizon uh, radar platforms, advanced human technology. Oddly, he never talks about the Hudson Valley alien abductions. Um, can you please go into more detail on all known information about the events at Indian Point? Uh, can you give us a comprehensive chronological breakdown, please? Okay, that's a tall order. But, yeah. um, 25 words or less. <laughs> I happen to have a chronology with me now. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> prepared. Well prepared. But yes. Um, Indian Point uh, is a nuclear reactor in Buchanan, New York. It, uh, it became active in 1962. It was built on the site of a former amusement park, for those who uh, are interested. Um, and there were some very famous sightings in 1984. There were um, craft, one of the incidents was June 14th, a craft about 300 feet long, boomerang-shaped, hovered for 20 minutes right over one of the reactors. Uh, On July 24th, there was a 900-foot craft. Some people said it was triangular, some shaped like an ice cream cone. It hovered 30 feet above one of the reactors. I mean, it's practically sitting on the reactor. The security personnel were issued shotguns. Um, It's not sure whether or not they fired upon this object, but there was supposedly video taken, which, of course, we'll never see the light of day. Yeah. So so those those are the two major sightings, but 
I have tra- tracked down, if you want me to continue with the more of the chronology. Oh, sure, um, sure. Okay. The first sighting I was able to track down was June of 1969. So the plant had only been open seven years, and there was a report of a round yellowish object over over the plant. Again, in August of 1976, over a hundred reports that month in August of people seeing craft uh, hovering around. It's a very active nuclear power plant. Um, skipping up to 1984, where there are those two huge sightings in June and July, I interviewed a man who's across the river, which is a very short distance. You, he had a, a perfect view of the power plant there. On October 30th of 1984, he's taking out the garbage, and he sees this massive craft, and uh, again, right over a reactor. A military helicopter is coming down the, the river after it, and before it can get anywhere close to it, he said this huge thing took off in the blink of an eye. And I asked him what was the size difference between the military helicopter and this craft. He said, imagine a typical lampshade, you know, the size of a lampshade in your living room. He said the helicopter would have been like a fly on the lampshade. So wow. Interesting. Yes. Um, again, in July of 85, there was a sighting. Late 85, I interviewed one of the security personnel who um, he was fairly new to the job, and his supervisor calls him one night and says, they're back. He's like, what are you talking about? He said, the UFOs. So they all ran outside, and he said this thing was huge, covering the plant. And where most people say they're silent, I thought this was very interesting. He said it was creaking like an aluminum canoe, you know, Mm. like an aluminum canoe flexing. So it definitely sounds like there was some metallic structure there. And there were more sightings um, in the end of the 80s. Nothing I have been able to hear about in recent uh, times, but they will be shutting down the reactor in a couple of years, so I'll be very interested to see if activity picks up again once they are decommissioning and removing this nuclear material. Yeah, I was actually just going to ask if the power plant was still operational. Um, I guess that kind of moves on to uh, Peter's next question here, which is, do you have any Hudson Valley UFO cases where witnesses experienced any kind of message? Uh, If so, uh, what? Yes, the, um, the typical message of you need to take care of your planet, um, which we've heard from many locations, for the most part, uh, people, it's not so much a direct message as they come away with this, let's say, more enlightened or more spiritual sense that they need to have a more open mind. They need to look at the world in a more, let's say, holistic sense that, in other words, take care of yourself, take care of the people, take care of your planet. And that is predominantly the messages that people have told me they have received. That's interesting. How are those messages conveyed? Usually telepathically. Hmm. Uh, in the presence of just the craft or one of the occupants of the craft? 
it, it varies. Sometimes people are just staring at a craft and they get that sense. They get these messages or and images. But usually it's during some sort of uh, encounter with some sort of being. <clears throat> okay. Uh, is that... Is that it for the, Peter's questions? Or? Oh no, there's uh, there's there's uh, one more. Okay, which one is more. what is the most interesting abduction case you have discovered? The very first case when I decided I was going to start writing this book and making the film, um, the very first man who I had sitting right here in my living room, uh, I thought, oh, I'm going to hear about lights in the sky, and he launches into this four generation abduction case where he started having uh, experiences, missing time, seeing craft, seeing small beings in the 1950s, and I come to find out, I interviewed his mother who was in her 80s, and I, I didn't do it because I thought she had been abducted, that never entered my mind, I just wanted to see how what kind of a kid he was did he make up a lot of stories did he was he talking about it and the more we're talking i she seemed very familiar with the subject so i said have you had experiences of your own she goes oh yeah i started having missing time in 1937 <laughs> <laughs> yes that was my reaction i my jaw hit the floor and it turns out the man she married lived in the same apartment building he was having missing time experiences in the 1930s. They miraculously end up getting married and having children who all had abduction experiences. His children had experiences, and now the great-grandchildren. Well, that's about as subtle as a ton of bricks. <laughs> exactly. Um, yes, that is the most in-your-face and remarkable abduction scenario. I've... I used to work in a lab, and if that isn't one big experiment, um, I don't know what is. Wow. So what was kind of like the, um, this is going to be kind of a weird way of wording it, but like the overall theme of the abductions, was it like some sort, some sort of altruistic sort of effort uh, from the ETs? Was, were, they, were they scared? Did they, feel, did they feel hopeful, spiritual, anything like that? I would, I, I just came up with this term from something else. I'd call it the snatch and grab. Uh, you know, the breaking and entering and grab you, you can't do anything about it. Um, they, he, they would be taken from their home. They, none of them remember anything past possibly seeing a being or actually one time this man, uh, his name is Gary, was driving along a road. He saw an egg-shaped craft. Next thing he knew, it was two hours later. Uh, scoop marks in his body. He still has triangular scoop marks in the back of his neck. You can put your fingers in. They're so deep. Um, bloody noses, uh, the feeling of being almost poisoned, you know, that flu-like symptoms. So that that was it for the most part with them. None of them really described being on a table or being in a craft, but certainly the mother... Uh, the you know the the oldest generation, she did she said these you know it's the little the, she described them as very white with those huge almond eyes and this goes back into the 1930s. This is not you know Whitley Strieber's uh, communion book cover influencing everybody mm. in back in the 1930s. 
Well, one of the th- well, you you know us. I mean, we, we kind of specialize in crossover phenomena, as it's called, uh, working sometimes with Kathy Martin and, and others who have cases such as you've described and then run into things that would not ordinarily be associated with UFO experiences of any kind, uh, poltergeist phenomena, uh, quote-unquote demonic stuff going on. Have you ever run into that in any of these cases in the in, in that vicinity? Yes. People who have, um, at the very least, had missing time seem to have unbelievable activity, haunted activity, poltergeist activity in their home. There's a case, um, if you, if anybody has my uh, Hudson Valley UFO book, you'll see there's a picture on the cover of these circles of sand in a driveway. And the, there was a pile of sand the night before. Bright lights come into the house. The woman has missing time. They get up in the morning. This pile of sand is gone, and something big and heavy had blown or taken it, I don't know. The sand pile was gone, and all that was left were these concentric rings impressed into the driveway. Well, from that time, they started having what she has described as very strong poltergeist activity. Now, they are have moved to Florida. The house is now vacant and will be put up for sale in the spring, And she's sending me the keys and saying, you can spend as much of the winter as you want there investigating. So I'm bringing together my ghost investigation crew and my UFO investigation crew. And we're going to do a joint project this winter to see what we can find out. We'd like to hear about that. Yeah, that's kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, There were... Uh, well, let's, uh, before we burn up the hour here, um, we're going to give you a chance to talk about your books and things, but we'll wait till after the break. But for now, uh, can we get into some more cases uh, that you find illustrate the, um, um, not severity, but the, but the uh, commonalities involved in some of these cases and the uh, uh, frequency that they uh, which they occur in the Hudson Valley, whether it be sightings or anything else? Sure. Uh, if, if anybody is at all familiar with the, the Hudson Valley wave, it began uh, December 31st, 1982. And the, the, big, the big ticket days were in March of 83, where on uh, March 17th, um, hundreds if not thousands of people witnessed a football field length kind of triangular boomerang type of craft over Route 84 in uh, between New York and Connecticut if you want to, you know, people want to go to their maps or if you're familiar with this area. Um, One of the key witnesses was the town clerk at the time, Dennis Sant, who stood in his yard as this thing hovered directly over him at treetop height. He said if he had had a baseball, he could have hit the craft. It was that low, uh, silent. People were just stopped on the highway. He lives right beneath the highway. So certainly that was um, an incredible day in the Hudson Valley wave. And just uh, a week later, there was an even larger sighting up and down the Taconic Parkway where, again, hundreds of people just stopped their cars, got out to look. Thousands of people saw it that night. Triangular, massive craft. 
these three teachers that I interviewed, they were coming back from New York City from some graduate courses, and they stood on the Taconic Parkway with this huge craft, again, at treetop level, for 20 minutes. Wow. Now, if this thing went over your head in the span of three seconds, it would change your life. But a solid 20 minutes is... And, and you know, I always have... I, I don't want to sound like, you know, I'm, I'm picking on the Phoenix Lights, but Phoenix... Everybody knows the Phoenix Lights. That was one night. That was like a typical night over the span of seven years in the Hudson Valley. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah, I, yeah. You know... There was such a disinformation campaign that it all had to do with people flying small planes in formation that I think that's part of why more people and even people in the field of ufology are not really familiar with the wave of the 80s. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we find very interesting in reports that we receive, and uh, I'm thinking of one that came from Connecticut not too far from the New York line, some years ago, and, and we've had similar ones since, that uh, well, it's on two levels. One is that you have a populated area or even a crowd of people, and some people see the UFO, others do not. Uh, and then there's the level where people feel that they are, the people who do see it maybe feel that they are receiving uh, messages as Peter's question uh, touched upon. Uh, one person in Connecticut said that he, he this was flying over his neighborhood. Some people saw it, some people didn't. And he felt as though he were being tested. Hmm. A very interesting way to put it. What say that, you that, on that? That is an interesting term for that, yes. Yeah. Uh, okay, well we'll, well, we'll let you think about that over the break. <laughs> and uh, we're going to take our break now. You're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON 1240 AM and 99.3 FM in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. And our fascinating guest today on UFOs in New York State, Linda Zimmerman. We'll be right back. Get down to brass tacks at home with me, Bob Vila, and my tip of the day every day right here. Bob Vila's Home Improvement Tip of the Day can only be heard on ON AM and FM every weekday at 6.50 in the morning. Bob Vila's Home Improvement Tip of the Day is brought to you by Cumberland Kitchen and Bath Design Center. Bob Vila's Home Improvement Tip of the Day on ON Radio. Okay, welcome back behind the paranormal. It's Paul and Ben Eno here and our guest Linda Zimmerman. Now, Linda, we were talking about the UFO sightings, of course, in the Hudson River Valley, and uh, we have run into some cases, as we said, where people uh, in, in a group, some of them will see a craft, some will not, if it, if it is a craft, uh, some will not, and others feel as though they were receiving personal messages here. Um, what examples can you give us of, of that sort of thing in the Hudson Valley? Or if, well, if it does take place. Yeah, well, going back to those three teachers, it's interesting talking to them about it because they all experienced it differently. The one noticed every single little detail, every light, and, you know, could draw it, describe it. One of them, she just noticed how bright everything was. She, she said, I, I couldn't tell you any of the details. She was just overwhelmed by the brightness. The third one, what got to her, she kept describing the eerie silence. And she would be looking around at all the other people and why wasn't anybody talking? And she had a much higher level of fear. In fact, that's why they finally left. The craft didn't leave. 
they left before the craft did because she just she just was not getting uh, comforting vibes from it let's say but I certainly have found where groups of people experience it so differently. It's like, are you sure you were looking at the right thing? Um, I, I don't. I see what you're saying about getting messages. I get that all the time, where people feel like they've been sought out, that mm. they're chosen. You know, that's kind of become a bit of a cliche. Oh, they came to find me. But it's true. Certainly. Well, I'm not saying it's true they came to find them, but they do get this sense that they have been tracked or for some reason they have been sought out for maybe because they're on that testing program list. I don't mm. know. What does that do to people's lives in your experience? You know, the broader picture. That was one of the main reasons I started writing the first book because 30 some odd years on, has this affected people's lives? And if so, for better or for worse. For the most part, I'd say more than half the people loved it, couldn't wait to experience it again. If it happened tomorrow, they'd be standing out in their driveway all night long. It gave them a much bigger sense of the world um, as I had mentioned before they felt more open to things they felt like you know life was something you you went out and lived and experienced as much as you could the other part uh, probably a little less than half absolute terror fear uh, one woman to that she had an experience back in 85. To this day, she will not go outside to bring the garbage out at night alone. She's afraid to go outside all these decades later. One man told me um, who had a lifetime of abduction experiences, he said, if I could kill every one of them, I would. Wow. Uh, you can't put it more clearly than that. Now, exactly. the Hudson River Valley, obviously the center of the valley is the beautiful Hudson River. I mean, we love to get over there every chance we get. It's one of the most beautiful places in America, we think. How close to the if anyone has tracked this, are there more sightings closer to the water than, say, in New Paltz or somewhere farther away? Uh, or has anybody uh, really tracked that? I'll, I'll tell you why I asked that in a minute. Yeah, there is a subset of sightings directly over the river and coming in and out of the river and there's a lot of reservoirs as well in the area so oh, okay. um, many of the sightings are directly involved with the water i would say probably if you were to say within 20 miles of the river would be the corridor with the most sightings but then again it's probably also the corridor of the more densely populated areas where there'd be more people to see them right right okay it's very interesting that there are um, and, and we're hearing more and more about and they, they've been going they've gone back for really centuries i guess uh, underwater sub or, uh, or unidentified submerged objects or whatever the usos are um can you give us some, some examples of, of people who have seen things coming in and out of the water whether it be the river or one of the lakes uh, there have been several reports of people um, actually in the Kingston area several decades ago 
seeing round, uh, circular patterns of lights under the water moving, you know, and, unless we have round submarines going up and down yeah. the Hudson. Um, there were several of those. The reservoirs, many people have seen them just rising up and shooting out of the reservoirs or going into it. Also, there was there have been many, many sightings of people seeing uh, some sort of craft, whatever shape, hovering within, let's say, 30, 40 feet of the surface of a lake, a river, uh, a reservoir, pulling water up out of it. Uh, I even have had several remarkable cases of people's swimming pools getting drained. They see uh, UFOs are seen in the area, and the next morning their swimming pools are drained, and they'll fill it back up, and there are no holes. There is no reason. And at first, the, the first one of these I heard, I, I have to say I was kind of biting my tongue. I'm like, yeah, okay, the UFO took your swimming pool water. <laughs> yeah. But the second or third report, and then I started looking up UFOs in swimming pool or, or tanks of water, and sure enough, um, it's it's something that happens. That is precious. That leads to another question. We're kind of getting on to the, the fringes of UFO interpretation here, I guess. There is a school of thought, not very large, uh, but it extends into those who are involved in uh, astrobiology. You know, scientists who would study extraterrestrial life, things of this kind, uh, who are real scientists who are, you know, not necessarily associated with the UFO community, but more with NASA and all. There's some opinion that that UFOs or or atmospheric objects could be living things. Very often when uh, residue has been found, uh, supposedly there have been organic um, characteristics that, that it might have. What say you about that idea? Has that come up at all in, in any of your research, that, that these could not be necessarily craft with occupants, but uh, living things or, or something, or, or even biomechanical things? Has that come up at all? Well, well, certainly it could be a segment of it. But when somebody says they're seeing a bright, shiny, metallic disc with lights, I'm not thinking a biological entity. Sure. But when people start seeing things that they describe as like an amorphous blob or like a jellyfish or something that changed shape or something they just couldn't even describe, certainly that could be in that that realm of, of biological. Okay. There, one of the reasons I asked about the water was because the uh, th- there's a, there's a little known outside of geology there's a little known phenomenon uh, it's a gravi- gravity anomaly known as the Bouguer anomaly and we've been looking into that over the last few years because we happen to notice that every uh, flap area quote unquote that we have been examining and, and investigating even for years and years uh, particularly the Litchfield Goshen area in Connecticut is uh, just um, saturated with the Bouger anomaly. And, we're one, and what it is, is I'm sure you, you know what it is, but just for those who don't, if you, as you walk downhill in an area where this is present, uh, gravity does not get greater, it gets lighter. And they're, they're all, they also, t- what they do is they use it to find uh, oil and gas deposits because of the presence of certain elements and minerals and all this sort of thing. So it has a practical use, but they still don't really understand it. In all these major areas, including the whole Hudson Valley, there was a presence of this Bouger anomaly. And 
what what we try and do is uh, at least look into the the possibility of what what Einstein said about um, uh, space and time and and being affected by gravity. Okay, and uh, you know, does this open parallel worlds to each other if you believe in that kind of thing uh does it have some effect on paranormal activity in general ufo activity in particular portals all this kind of thing uh i don't know if that's come up we, we didn't talk to you uh, beforehand about that question but uh um if it, if it has not come up it might be something that uh, some of the researchers in your might want to look into no it has not people have mentioned gravitational fields but not to the extent um, you have just talked about. So that is certainly something to look into. Yeah, we don't know uh, much about One of the either, things just, that yeah, is prevalent in some of these areas where there have been, you know, the mass sightings is the magnetic fields. There were some very pure magnetite mines oh. uh, in the Putnam Duchess area. And that seemed to have some correlation to sightings. So uh, generally when people ask me why the Hudson Valley the only thing I can come up with is I, I think it's been going on for a very long time and has something to do with the natural earth energies and fields here. Hmm. Okay. Uh, speaking of Route 84, uh, the interstate, big interstate highway east to west uh, that goes through the Hudson Valley where there were sightings, how far east were those sightings? I remember the stories of people you know, literally stopping, getting out of their cars and watching the lights. Uh, how far east did those go? They go into Connecticut? and Because uh, you mentioned you know 20-mile pretty much core. Well, 20 mile for the, the bulk of the sightings, but when we're talking about the wave and Route 84, Danbury was almost a, a nightly participant in those sightings. They would either start in that area in western Connecticut and then end up in New York or vice versa. Interesting. So um, I, there's a lot of Danbury sightings. There's the famous one where well, when people were first calling to report sightings to the police department there, they were told, oh, you know, uh, sleep it off and the big pink elef elephant will go away, <laughs> you know, making, yeah. making fun of people till the chief of police and 12 of his uh, local officers had a sighting one night and suddenly it became, yeah, there are UFOs <laughs> and I don't care what anybody says, uh, <laughs> So they changed their tune very quickly. So clearly, um, in, in my last book, uh, More Hudson Valley UFOs, uh, a lot of it, a lot of it is Western Connecticut because they're just inextricably intertwined. Well, your books are great, and we wanted to give you a chance to talk about uh, what the books are, where people can get them, and where they can find out more about you, your website, etc., Oh, well, thank you. Yes, the first book was In the Night Sky, and that was the one that the uh, documentary uh, had been filmed of, of the same name, In the Night Sky. Um, I think before the ink was dry, people were saying, well, you have to write another book because you have to tell my story. Mm -hmm. Because you know, you know how it is. You give one presentation and 20 people come up to you with, with their stories. Yep. So then came out Hudson Valley UFOs, um, which then led to more Hudson Valley UFOs. So since I'm running out of titles, um, I'm thinking in 2022, it's, you know, we have a few years from now, what I'd like to do is combine all these books with all of the new material I have gained, um, and which still comes in constantly, and do one large 
to definitive, well, I don't know how definitive it will be, but one large volume of Hudson Valley experiences the whole hundred years um, with what I think is the best evidence from well, those from all those times. That sounds great. I'm excited already because you're, <laughs> you're a darn good writer, and I'm an editor, so I can say that, uh, you know. <laughs> but um, but certainly, um, now, now getting back into some of the cases, Linda, where there were crossover phenomena, uh, we have a lot of contacts in your area who talk about uh, Bigfoot sightings and, and cryptids, uh, upright canine cryptids, this, this sort of thing. Um, I, I don't know if you get into that in your research. I know you get into ghost research a lot. Uh, have you encountered, uh, in the context of any of the UFO cases, people who are also seeing cryptids? Absolutely. I, I often joke Bigfoot is the one rabbit hole I have not gone down yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, but right. but it is inevitable. Well, you're cordially it's inevitable, invited. The big, big Bigfoot hole, uh, because uh, people the same night they have seen or within minutes of seeing a UFO will describe some large, uh, often hairy creature um, that they see or is running by or is approaching them. It's not very often. It's not like in the Pacific Northwest, but mm-hmm. there are enough sightings in this area tied with either paranormal ghostly activity or UFO activity. Um, I wish I could tie a bow around all of the phenomena at once, but I, I don't know what the connection is, but clearly there's a correlation. Okay. Well, one thing that we get a little nervous about is when people do receive messages or or, or, or abducted, this sort of thing. Uh, and it's fascinating that, that you describe about half the population who's ex- of experiencers as considering their experiences positive and the other half kind of negative. What, what, are the, what say you about trusting these phenomena? In other words, if you receive a message, should you believe it? Or should well, be th- that's that's the big question, isn't it? Um, if they're willing to, you know, snatch you out of your bed and car and and do terrible things to you, um, how much can you trust their message? But I I would tend to think if they're trying to instill a positive message, that that can only be a good thing. If they were saying go out and harm your fellow man, that's you know not so good. But the fact that these the seem to be, when they get a, a message, that it is a positive message, um, I would be, I would think we can trust that. I, I would hope, um, particularly since these people are returned and not harmed in any major way. Okay. All right. Well, that seems reasonable. Um, okay. Now. One of our producers, whom you have met, uh, lives in the Hudson Valley, and uh, how, how likely would it be for her to go outside of her door? She lives right on the river, uh, not on the, you know, what I mean, you know, adjacent to the river, and uh, to, to see something in the sky in a given night. In other words, how common are sightings and, and UFO experiences today? Well, today, I would say there's a very good chance because in the last two months, I would say, there has definitely been a huge uptick in activity in the Kingston, Saugerties, New Pulse area, um, as well as in the Pine Bush area, which we haven't even really gotten a chance to touch on, uh, which is one of the hottest of the hot spots. So, well, we can talk can about go, that. We have a very you few can go minutes. for months without seeing anything, but recently there has been a lot. Yeah. So tell us about Pine Bush. We know it's a hot spot. We don't know much about it. 
when the big wave was uh, kind of starting to diminish in the late 80s, it seemed that Pinebush, which is in northwestern Orange County, um, really took off. There had been sightings there for decades, but a huge wave began. Uh, triangular craft, a lot of lights in the sky, but what sets Pinebush apart from most locations is a lot of the activity takes place coming in, it going into the ground or coming up out of the ground. Hmm. A lot of lights and even solid looking craft coming out of the ground. And I think that is somewhat rare in the whole scheme of things. That's fascinating. And that, yes, and that went on for several years into the early 90s. Hmm. Hundreds of cars would be parked along these old farm roads any given night. I mean, hundreds of people every single night of the week would, I, you know, some people drove hours and hours and, and still managed to hold down a, a, a full-time job and yet come <laughs> to Pinebush every night. It had that kind of draw back then. So did it disturb the ground at all, or like dense craters, anything like that? No. They, they would run out to the spot. Um, I had this one fascinating uh, description. This woman said where something seemed to come up out of it, uh, of the ground, she ran over. There was nothing disturbed, but she said it was almost looked like sparklers in the ground, like some sort of scintillating energy where mm. this thing had emerged. But nobody's ever said there were, you know, depressions. There was a, I don't want to really call it a crop circle, but there was a area of depressed grass just two or three years ago. Uh, circular craft was seen in a field, hovering over the field. And where it was hovering, the grass was all broken at ha- in half at a height of about two feet. And uh, the head of... New York MUFON used a Geiger counter there and found out that the radiation levels were six and a half times normal hmm. within that circle of broken grass. Oh, wow. Uh, on these examples of UFOs coming up and coming and going from the ground, um, one would ask, did they, has anyone looked at the, the uh, geological or geotechnic commonalities of those sites by any chance, or has anybody gotten that far yet? Well, there have certainly been some studies, you know, what is going on in the pine bush area. And there do seem to be some unusual fields. Um, I, I cannot remember what the geology is exactly there. Of course, some people claim there's ancient underground UFO bases. Um, but one thing that is very strange is that people hear sounds under the ground as if there were heavy equipment like construction vehicles under their feet. Hmm. So I don't know if that's some sort of tectonic activity, uh, you know, or earthquake-type activity. Um, it's just weird. Well, I'm thinking of uh, the so-called moodus noises in Connecticut, near where I grew up, and you'd hear that just that sort of thing. Uh, and there were a few UFO sightings at the time, although I was a kid, so and the University of Connecticut seismologists came and they said it's seismic. It's, it, there okay. were a lot of, of minor faults in the area. And matter of fact, a few years ago they had some uh, quakes that 
knock stuff off our relatives' uh, shelves in eastern Connecticut. Uh-huh. So um, th- that is one possibility, and also uh, earthquake lights, so-called, uh, have been theorized, although they, they only last for a, a second. So uh, th- this leads into the question, what sort of UFOs were seen coming from the ground? Did they seem metallic, or did they seem uh, more ethereal, just lights, or what, what sort of UFOs were seen in those contexts? Yes, the short answer is yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was all, all of the above. Oh, um, okay. Everything from lights, streaks of almost like lightning, which of course could be earth lights, orange orbs, to solid metallic uh, discs, cylinders, uh, triangles. Uh, one one famous case from the 60s, a man, uh, there's a, a circular UFO hovering mm-hmm. over a, a small bridge, and there were four witnesses, and they said they stood there looking at the figures in the windows of this thing as the figures in the windows looked down at them. So it does ra- uh, have the full range and cryptids of varying degrees of bizarreness. Um, it really is the whole gamut and, and haunted activity like you would not believe in Pine Bush. There you go. So yes, the, right. that it's it's you know I, I kind of kid it's like a mini Skywalker re- a Skinwalker rest Skywalker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but him too. Be with you, uh, a mini Skinwalker Ranch type of scenario in Pine Bush because it's it's all the act types of activity are there. You name it. Okay, uh, we don't have much time, but we have a really great question from Dave in Florida. Uh, who just wrote in, we can maybe get it started anyway. Sure, sure. We, can, we can at least attempt to. Alrighty, so Dave writes to us, uh, food for thought, behavioral uh, neuroscientist Michael Persinger's uh, tectonic strain theory, although specifically aimed at offering a neuroscience reason for UFO spikes as a sudden uh, radical change in the local magnetic field caused by tectonic electromagnetic discharges, um, which is caused by earthquakes. More importantly, he claims uh, the radical changes to the local magnetic field create a transient, uh, create transient electrical displays in the temporal lobes of the brain. Uh, or temporal lobe, I'm sorry, not plural. Uh, so these temporal lobe transients uh, can impact uh, hippocampal function, affecting memory reference, including the conviction that something meaningful and deeply personal has transpired. Uh, this seems to dovetail with Linda's description of the emotional reaction to UFOs. That interesting. Uh, so my question would be, Linda, has any, did anybody photograph any of these UFOs, particularly the ones coming up out of the ground? I know there have been lots of photos in general. but Sure, there have been a lot of photos of the light phenomena in Pine Bush. Um, there have been many photos over the decades of uh, classic flying saucers, patterns of lights. So certainly, uh, could some of these be... Uh, some sort of magnetic field in, in, you know, influencing the brain, of course. But when they, they can be photographed and they look like they have girders and, and panels and things, um, I, I, I think it's part of the phenomenon. But again, I, I don't see any one explanation to the Hudson Valley phenomenon. Hmm. Okay. Uh, great question, Dave. Uh, thank you for uh, for writing it in. Okay, well, we're kind of coming down to the wire here, and uh, Linda, please, terrific conversation. Please give us uh, your website and contact info one more time. 
You can go to gotozim, G-O-T-O-Z-I-M dot com. You can reach me through there. I have a, I have a slew of Facebook pages. Uh, you can see all the different things I do, um, between my UFOs, ghosts, fiction. I write zombie novels. So, um, check out all the strange things I do. Okay. <laughs> That's great. We hope we'll see you soon and Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas, and thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. That was Very a lot good. of fun. Well, we'll do it again. Okay. Let's get to our announcements. Ben, take it away. Alrighty. So, we have, uh, for any of your unusual friends, it is the gift-giving time uh, this year. So, if anybody you know is really into the strange and the paranormal and all sorts of oddities like that, uh, you can check out our books, and you can even get them autographed by us at our uh, show website. So our latest titles include Behind the Paranormal, Everything You Know is Wrong, and Behind the Paranormal 2, Bigfoot, Mothman, Monsters, uh, and Monsters You've Never Heard Of. And they are available on a, from online retailers and in some stores, but autographed copies you can visit our show website, like I mentioned earlier, BehindTheParanormal.com. So, of course, tomorrow's Christmas Eve, so it might be a little late for this year, and Hanukkah's over already, so... Um if you happen to be in, uh, from Eastern Europe on an old calendar Christmas, you've got till January 7th. Yes. Uh, or there's next year, or everybody's always having birthdays. That's true. Or unbirthdays, or whatever. Anyway, <laughs> our first event of 2019 will be an encore presentation at the Town of Prospect Senior Center in Connecticut on uh, April 23rd. Uh, that's not going to be too far away. Uh, only four months, and it will be, or five, uh, we'll keep you posted as de- details develop. It's a wonderful place. It is open to the public, uh, these events, and it's big. Uh, I was there. You could make it that time, but I had 67 people oh, wow. uh, come, and it was really a, a tremendous day, a wonderful group of seniors and, and younger people, too. It's, it's just great. So uh, check that out, uh, information on our website and our Facebook pages as well. Uh, my next book, uh, Ben's sitting this one out because he, wasn't born yet when most of this happened. Uh, Dancing Past the Graveyard, Poltergeists, Parasites, Parallel Worlds, and God will be published in hardcover in the 2019. We'll keep you posted on a release date for that. And also at our show website, BehindTheParanormal.com, in case you haven't heard it enough times, uh, you can find out more about the show, our uh, many cases over the years, our public appearances, and you'll find over 800 free recorded shows from our 10-plus years on the air, including our four-and-a-half-year run on CBS Radio, along with special shows and podcasts. Uh, there are also links on that BehindTheParanormal.com site to several charities Ben and I have adopted, including uh, USACares.org, Canadian Veterans Advocacy, Helping Haiti's Orphans, Youth Mentoring Connection in Los Angeles, and the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America, uh, all of whom whose leaders we know, and we can vouch for their the uh, efficacy of these tremendous charities. Please check them out. Uh, and there are links, of course, as I say, on uh, BehindTheParanormal.com. So, Ben, what is lying in wait for us next week? Oh, boy. So, uh, next week, which is December 30th, here on WOON, 1240 AM and 99.3 FM, uh, we will bring you the first of two back-to-back open-line shows to catch up with those ever-growing uh, stack of emails and questions from every which where in the multiverse. Uh, and then we will have uh, guest co-host uh, Shane Searway with us to tackle all of these questions from our listeners uh, on many, 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 many paranormal subjects. Yeah, so you never know what's going to come up on people. It's really exciting. So um, maybe once a year we'll do these back-to-back open lines. So open lines one, open lines two, and Shane is, is just a really popular We'll answer to approximately three questions. <laughs> well, you know, some of, some of them are just so good that the, the discussion takes up 
15, 20 minutes of the show, but that's why we're going to have two shows. Exactly. So what is so, the quote this week, Dad? Okay. Well, first of all, I want to wish everyone a Merry Christmas for everyone who celebrates it in two days. And uh, so our first, our last show of 2018 will be that, and our, our next show, uh, first show of 2019 will be Open Lights. Anyway, this thought is from attributed uh, to the great Shawnee Chief Tecumseh. When you rise in the morning, give thanks for the light, for your life, for your strength. Give thanks for your food and for the joy of living. If you see no reason to give thanks, the fault lies in you. I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno. And thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey, and we shall see you behind the paranormal. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with 